And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When you talk to people about who on the world stage, who among world leaders uh, can drive liberal democracies forward in an age uh, in which they're really under siege from populist challengers, from illiberal forces. One of the names that comes up is Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, the son of a historic uh, prime minister. He's making his own history, having brought his liberal party back from near irrelevance to a remarkable victory in 2015. And he has charted a path on issues like gender equality, the rights of indigenous peoples, uh, climate change. In the age of Trump, he is the progressive antithesis. Justin Trudeau is a guest at the Institute of Politics this week uh, to mark our fifth anniversary and sat down to talk about his life, his career, and the state of the world. This particular podcast will be divided into two parts. I sat down uh, alone with him for the first part of the conversation that had a lot to do with his own journey. And uh, then we spoke in front of an audience about some of the big issues, NAFTA and others, that is that are on his plate today. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You know, I have all kinds of people on this podcast who have different stories about their pathways to politics, but you you literally were born into it, born into it. Uh, and talk a little bit about what that was like. The only thing you ever knew for the first, what, 13, 13 years of years. your life yeah. was that you were the son of the prime minister of Canada. Well, I was I was lucky in that uh, we went to a elementary uh, school that was a public school, and I had lots of friends who knew me from before they had any awareness of what a prime minister was. I mean, when you start in kindergarten, they judge you as who you are, not you know what kind of car you show up in. And fortunately, for the you know first years of my schooling, uh, I was surrounded by people for whom it was just a fact of life that this was particular about Justin, but they didn't deal with me differently than, or much differently than anyone else would. There was no awareness of a real difference there. And that that made it um, better in a certain sense. But the other thing that I, I developed over the course of, of my life was a certain understanding that when people come to me or meet me for the first time, they often come with preconceived notions, depending on whether they like my father or dislike my father. And my responsibility was to sort of get them away from those preconceived notions, but also to be tough enough to be able to not consider that someone else can define me and how they think. If they hated me for reasons unrelated to who I am, I couldn't let that affect me. But if they loved me for un- reasons unrelated to who I actually was, I couldn't let that overly affect me either. You wrote this very poignant uh, autobiography called Common Ground when you were running uh, for uh, prime minister, when you were leading your party. Uh, and the portrait that you uh, paint of your childhood was at once both interesting because who has Ronald Reagan come and read them poems uh, when they're a kid? But the other piece of it seemed very poignant. Uh, your, your folks had an unusual marriage. Your mom was 30 years younger. Uh, she left when, when you were a kid. How, how does a 
how do you and your father was occupied uh, with the affairs of the of the country. How, how do you process all of that? Well, I think I think you know you can you can choose to look at that as particular or uh, the opportunities and the challenge that surrounded me uh, were different from those of my friends. But the things that actually were real for me, you know, the difficulty in my parents' marriage, uh, later on losing uh, losing my little brother, mm-hmm. the kinds of challenges we faced of having a dad who worked too much, uh, you know, a mom who wasn't always happy, or as we later found out, was struggling with mental illness. These things are universal, and they matter in people's lives more than you know what what the job is or even right. what the income level is. They're so, formative. But in that sense, my story is is particular because I was the son of the prime minister. But um, all too common, there's too many you know too many of us who grew up in difficult situations, and it's not certainly to to complain about it because overall I was incredibly lucky. But it also you, know, you also have experiences that shape you in in the negative as well. Yeah, the difference is, I mean, I had my own struggles, uh, not unlike the struggles that you had, but I didn't. They didn't play out under the watchful eye of a whole country. Well, by, by the time, of, first of all, you know, growing up in, in the 70s and early 80s, there wasn't the social media to, to impact. And I didn't uh, read the newspapers, so there wasn't a lot of playing out in front of the whole country. It wasn't until years later that I uh, heard about and saw sort of stories of my parents' breakup. But at the same time, when I lost my little brother, my youngest brother, when he was 23, we had an entire country uh, feeling like they had lost someone that they cared for. And when my dad died a couple of years later, I, you know, I got to deal with the death of my father uh, by being supported and shouldered by an entire country who were also feeling the loss. So, yes, there is a level of exposure or negativity that can come with that, but there is also a tremendous amount of uh, support and you know, positive love and energy coming from Canadians that, uh, that was hugely helpful. When you, uh, when you were thinking about running, uh, you have small children, now you have three. Um, knowing what your experience was, did you have a conversation with your wife and with yourself about do I want to uh, expose them to the kinds of sacrifices that are uh, uh, that are connected to being the children of the prime minister? I knew that it would bring challenges and difficulties for my kids growing up, but I also knew better than most how uh, extraordinarily positive the experiences and the life it can be if the parents are focused on giving the right kind of upbringing to the kids. And I certainly got that. I had parents who put our well-being as kids at the front of everything and tried to raise us normal in a very unnormal situation. And the conversation I had with Sophie was uh, about going into politics, about starting a family, was if we do it, we have to stay grounded, we have to stay right, we have to give them as much as possible a normal childhood in what will be an abnormal situation. Yeah, well, and you guys have, uh, you're together, Family. There was a, such a there was such a moving story in your book about you uh, playing a journey 
song for your mom when she was uh, coming to visit and see you uh, because your parents were separated and you played the music for her and she couldn't hear it because it was and so the the moment was kind of lost and um i just you know it it was uh it was mo- it was it was moving to think of you as a kid so that's not exactly normal well i think we all i mean you've you've seen the youtube videos uh, titled daddy's home that is just a, a montage of of you know kids of daddy coming home from war or from a construction mm-hmm. site and the kids reacting there's something universal about that and that's certainly something i i felt and i lived but at the same time the the, the effort and the deliberate choice I make, but mostly Sophie, who's an incredible partner, makes to bring moments of magic into into their kids' lives, into our kids' lives, is is really really important. And when in in the future, when they look back on their childhood, I want those moments to be that they remember most, not when you know they went to the White House, mm-hmm. but uh, instead uh, when we had a picnic uh, in you know in the woods on a on a snowy day or something like that 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 they remember. I uh, remember I was a young reporter in the in the seventies, and I remember uh, and followed the news closely. Your father was a, really a global figure for a long. Uh, period of time. You didn't choose politics. Uh, and I'm always interested in the sons of very famous mm. political dads. And more often than not, there is this period in which they don't choose to go down that path. Uh, tell me tell me why you didn't. Why didn't you say, this is the family business, I'm going to do this? Well, first of all, my father uh, didn't want that from us. Uh, I don't think he, he expected it of me. He always thought I'd be a teacher my whole life, uh, not, a, not a politician. But for me, like anyone goes through moments of trying to define themselves in continuity with their parents or in opposition to their parents. And the one thing I figured out, having a father who casts such a big shadow all my life, people say going into politics with a father who is a prime minister must be difficult. Well, going to grade one with a father who is a prime minister was pretty difficult. And it's something that I've had to deal with all my life. And I developed a very strong sense of, of who I am and what I was. So being able to look at myself reasonably objectively to see first of all say no I'm not going into politics and say no I wasn't going to become leader and be totally fine with that once I was in politics and then come to it honestly of saying actually no I think it is the right thing to go into politics or it is the right thing to choose to become leader and then and then hopefully prime minister but coming to that with a, an honest and a real approach requires a level of of understanding of oneself, but also understanding of the country you want to serve that is uh, slightly more self-aware than most politicians usually are. Do you feel, I would think one of the obstacles to entry is when you have a, a parent who does cast such a large shadow, there is the inevitable sort of uh, sense that people might have, well, is he like his dad? Is he going to be do for me what his dad did and so on? And it puts you in a kind of competitive situation, even if you don't want to be. Is that, was, is that some of the disincentive? 
I mean, that was certainly something I was aware of as a potential challenge, but it didn't really play out that way to any degree. I mean, perhaps my father skipped a generation when he had me in that he was 51 when I was born. So he was the same age as most of my friend's grandparents. And that meant that the time from him leaving politics to me entering politics was sufficiently large that there wasn't a, a, a tangible recent memory to it. And the other thing is I spent a lot of time focusing on young people and people who mm-hmm. didn't necessarily have any visceral or direct connection to my father, positive or negative. He was part of the history books, but it wasn't, oh, okay, you'll be like him. The advantage side of it was people knew my father's values and had sort of seen me grow up from afar and knew that I had uh, or felt a sense of familiarity or even uh, connection to me, having seen me grow up and being aware of me all my life. But for me to be able to say from the beginning, look, you know my values. I have very strong values that I inherited from both of my parents. But the way those values are articulated into policy or solutions for now is totally different. And I'm going to do it my way and in a way that is genuine to me, which is different from my father. And the way I got into politics was very much more grounded in people, in community work, in being a local member of parliament. Your father was really an ascetic kind of person. I mean, he was a scholar. He was sort of a... A, a Jesuit uh, mm-hmm. uh, in his approach. Um, he wasn't the sort of glad-hander. He wasn't the guy who went door-to-door. He yep. started at a very high level. He, he did, and and that's certainly something that I sort of pointed to for myself as one of those different points. I'm not going to do it the same way as my father did, so it'll be more difficult. I didn't worry too much about what other people what shaped mm-hmm. other what other people thought, but it won't be too difficult for me to distance what I'm doing from the echoes or the desire to fulfill my father's destiny. But the one thing that actually makes me fundamentally different from my father, well, there's lots of things, but one of the things in regards to politics is the childhood I had, where he was very much yeah, an A student focused on school and his own path in a very sort of solitary way. I grew up first in politics, being surrounded by people of, uh, from every corner of the country, visited every corner of the country before I turned 10, basically. Uh, and throughout my teenage years and into my 20s, as I was backpacking across the country or living in different corners of the country, whenever I struck up a conversation with someone, I'd hear different stories or get a different perspective. And when came the point where they realized what my last name was and who my father was, suddenly the conversation turned to our country and our future and politics in a way that small talk between strangers or new acquaintances doesn't automatically do. And I got to hear people's the small dreams. People's dreams for the country mm-hmm. and their aspirations yeah. and connect it to a th- a. a a learning from Canadians that my father didn't get that that not many people who haven't had this experience. Sort of interesting. Your, I mean, sort of a seminal event in your political evolution was this uh, eulogy that you gave at your father's funeral. I mean, if you were writing a novel, and I know you are a voracious reader, you you made that point in your book. If you were writing a novel, there's something novelistic 
about that. Uh, that that almost that was the 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 end of his storied life and career, and it was almost a, a the beginning of something for you. For me, it was an opportunity to not just uh, tell people how great my dad was as a dad, uh, but to show them as well. To say, okay, look, look at the kind of dad he was who could raise sons who could you know, do this for their father. And almost instantly... There was a, a huge pull to get me into politics. I was, uh, and I said, "Oh, whoa, 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 no, 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 that's not going to happen." And I, you know, stepped away and you know went back to my own life as a teacher and went back to school and you know did. It was really important for me to not look at this as mm-hmm. a, a Hollywood story right. that would instantly you know be these next steps. I said, "No, no, 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 no. Nobody's going to push me into writing a story that I'm not." Uh, ready to embark upon. And I still knew I had lots of growing, lots of learning, lots of learning from Canadians. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Justin Trudeau. You mentioned earlier that you lost your brother when he was 23. A couple of years before your father died, you wrote about the fact that he, your father was never quite the same after that happened. What did impact did it have on you? You're just a few years older. Um, it was it was a moment for of almost uh, loss of faith for my father. He couldn't understand how uh, God would have taken away his youngest son uh, when he was at the end of his life and Mishi was at the beginning of his. For me, it was a moment to find faith, um, to I, I sort of reconnected with my Catholicism at that point and uh, found myself obviously trying to make sense of a universe in which my my younger brother, who was so incredibly vibrant, could could be taken from us in, a, in an avalanche accident. But at the same time, it taught me a lesson about um, doing what matters. I mean, he was only 23, but he had found his way. He was living in the mountains as a as a ski guy and you know, he was he was fulfilled in a way that I was still searching for and seeking for. And that idea that not every day matters, that's trite to say, but every year, are you doing what you are meant to be doing? Are you living your full life this year? Because who knows if there'll be a next year was a a reminder for me to really focus on what I could be doing right now to make my life more meaningful or what, what I can contribute to the world. And that challenge, that reminder of the limited time we have was was extremely powerful. And a lot of that had to do with working with young people. Mm. Why were you attracted to that? Um, I'm the eldest of an extended family that ended up having you know six kids in it uh, with half brothers and half sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always the eldest of our group of friends and my kids, my brother's friends. So I had a a natural. Um, capacity to sort of draw and direct and, and, and gather people around. And that that was something that, that sort of helped me, I guess, evolve into the person that I am. And that was what drew, drew you. I mean, the, the Liberal Party was going through a hard time when you uh, began to uh, become deeply involved. And you were brought in 
initially to, to try and attract younger people to the party? You know, whether it was as a teacher, but it was something that I, I chose to do, to be mm-hmm. connected with young people because of my background in education, because of of a, a, a youthful outlook, I guess. But for me, the conversations I had with young people that weren't hooked to structures of the path, the past, the Liberal Party had been the, you know, the, the New York Yankees of political parties, the winningest party in Canadian history that you know, had governed for 75 of the last 100 years or something like that. And it had grown a little bit calcified, a little bit complacent, a little bit struck in, stuck in its ways. And these young people I talked to didn't so much care about previous generations or the way things used to be, were very much, well, what kinds of structures or what kind of approach is going to matter today? And I thought that willingness to you know, draw on the past but create a new future was essential to how you create a, move, a political, political movement uh, for the 21st century. And what, at what juncture did you say, you know what, this is, this is it. This is, this is what I can – this is my best use. I, I resisted um, when we'd gone through a couple of different leaders that didn't end up working out. Um, people started to turn to me and say, oh, no, you should really run and you know, maybe that will work because nothing else seems to have worked. Uh, and I really resisted. I said, no, 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 the next leader has to understand how to work really, really hard. You can't just you know, go for the, the celebrity face and think that's going to solve the problem. So I'm, I'm not kind that of what solution the you're looking did, for. But anyway, that's a different issue. <laughs> I'm not the, the easy solution you're looking for. I will help the next leader by working really, really hard on the ground and rebuilding. And then I sort of looked around and realized, actually, if we want to do the work of rebuilding and working hard – I actually have that perspective and that capacity better than, you know, the other people around who might do it. So um, I should be, I could be leader, not because of the past, but because of what I brought as a present. And I realized that I could bring people along uh, with that. You know, I work uh, uh, closely with young people here at the Institute of Politics, and it struck me after we Began that maybe we shouldn't be the Institute of Politics because the two things that they were most skeptical about were institutions and politics. Uh, and there, there is in young people this great desire to change the world, mm-hmm. but a deep skepticism as to whether this is the process by which you do it. They'll say, let's start an app. Yep. Let's engage in social media. We'll get involved with an NGO. We'll, right. we'll actually go out and protest and prevent this you know, park from being you know, turned into a parking lot or whatever. There's a sense of, I have different ways of getting involved to shape the world. Why would I get involved in politics if it's a you know, old school structure that's going to disempower me, use me for my envelope sticking skills and not actually listen to me. So one of the things that I realized was the reverse was also true, that if we actually turned around and empowered and listened to young people, we could create something that not only would be new, but that would itself be interesting to young people who were looking for tangible ways of making a difference. And you built this movement, and I was familiar with such a movement because it was very much like what I saw with Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008. And um, I'm proud of what he achieved over uh, the eight years he was president. But um, he came headlong into what I suspect you face as well, which is there's always some compromise associated with government. And you have to make 
choices all the time between the ideal and what is practically achievable. And that inevitably creates some jaundice Mm -hmm. uh, among the people who looked at you as kind of the ideal. Uh, How how much – I know that your numbers have uh, come down to – like human levels in uh, Canada, and you've got political uh, challenges there. How much of that is associated with the the kind of grinding challenges of governing? I think I think obviously uh, when when people um, first elect you, they have real hopes on this issue, that issue, and. What underlies the whole thing is, is this person going to do right for me in the values that I have, in the approach that they're saying? Are they going to do the kinds of things they said they would do when they were asking for my vote? And yes, you can get decisions that are disappointing on this or that because governing is messy and it's about difficult choices that – yeah, citizens don't want to have to make sometimes. Right? Like we have to make the, those tough mm-hmm. choices, and that's why we get elected for it. And what I'm focused on is not so much is every individual decision, you know, the one that people absolutely thought I was going to do, but am I staying true to the reasons people chose me and or had confidence in me? And I think on that level, uh, we are remaining consistent with the values and the approach. And you know, to be fair, the difference between the American system and the Canadian system, where uh, I have both the executive and the legislative lined up, means I don't have the same kind of pushback. We used to we used to talk about that a lot in the White House in some of those dark days when we couldn't get Congress to act. Boy, those parla- the parliamentary system looks awfully good. President Obama always used to say, I'd love to have a question period, too. I'd love to debate those guys. Um, one, one other thing that happened, um, I, I read your book and I read this um, – I read a quote of yours in there in which you said, I would learn from growing up in Ottawa, political leaders and their families are surrounded by people whose job it is to make life easier for them. It's one of the reasons that politicians sometimes develop a sense of entitlement. You've, you've had us, you, you, one setback you had was an ethics uh, violation for taking a vacation uh, that uh, was ruled inappropriate. I, when I read this, I thought, did you fall into – could you possibly have fall, fallen into the trap that you wrote about? I think obviously um, yeah, I, I regret the choice I made to go uh, bring my family on a vacation to someone who I considered and still consider to be a longtime family friend. But it's normal that our um, expectations and the frame that our institutions and our, our – citizens put on the bar that should be higher for who's a friend of the prime minister is is acceptable. So, uh, yes, I take it as as something that I deeply regret and need to learn from. But at the same time, the central focus of everything I've been doing over the past two years has been to try and stay connected to Canadians, whether it's going out on open town halls, as I do uh, every year at the beginning of the year. Take an abuse, uh, take a beating at some of them. Yes, taking a beating from people who are are displeased, but also having an opportunity to connect directly and listen directly to ordinary citizens uh, who want to come out and try and see why their leader made this decision or that decision, how they're going to deal with this particular situation. That that maintaining of a real connection with people is, I think, the most important thing for politicians. And it's 
the hardest thing to, 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 to have because you know, we are insulated by motorcades and layers of experts and scientists and top advisors who are really, really smart about a lot of things but can distance you from the experiences of ordinary Canadians. And getting that balance right has been something that I've uh, continued to work on really, really hard. And I think I'm doing okay in terms of staying connected to Canadians. You, uh, I know that you will navigate around this to some degree, but um, you, you spoke at the Institute tonight and uh, spoke about your view on issues like trade, on issues like diversity, on, on, on issues like gender equality. Um, and uh, everyone in the room understood that these are not the prevailing themes in Washington, that the president has an entirely different approach. And, and, and up to and including saying that America is going to turn inward, uh, uh, America first, so that America is not going to play quite the leadership role that it played on human rights and some of these other issues. And so people look to you and uh, Macron in France as uh, as perhaps being able to fill that void. Uh, do you do you see yourself in that role? Canadians have always seen a role for ourselves as positive, active players on the world stage, whether it was in the creation of UN peacekeeping, whether it was stepping up in the trenches of World War I or the beaches of World War II. We have uh, a level of international action and engagement that has always been there and a, and a level of, of pride in the positive impacts we've had on the world. We're not the biggest country around. We can't throw our weight around, but we have developed a well-earned reputation for being there to help and having a positive impact. And, you know, there is always ebbs and flows in the different approaches that different countries have in, in around the world. And Canada will always look for ways to, to best help. And if there is a moment right now where Canada can step forward a little bit more, then I know we're glad to take it. Let me ask you about the state of liberal democracies generally. Uh, you talk, This trade issue is right in the center of it because when you look at Brexit, you look at the election of Donald Trump, you look at some of the other elections in Europe, there is this illiberal kind of populist, anti-trade, nativist movement that is a reaction to the times, the, 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 uh, the sort of pace of the times, the pace of change, the sense that people are being uh, left behind and that elites are the beneficiaries of all of that. How, does, how do liberal democracies uh, fight back? Um, well, first of all, listening to people, understanding that those fears are real, that sense of um, lack of opportunity for ordinary people is tangible in a whole bunch of different ways, whether it's the failure of, of access to education or the stratification of society in, in various ways, the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots and the have-yachts. <laughs> um, we, have, we have a real anxiety that's out there that politicians can make choices around what to do with. Once you see that's there, do you amplify that anxiety and try to use it for political gain? Or do you try and allay those fears with tangible solutions that are going to bring people together? Obviously, the latter is much harder. Uh, it's harder when people are anxious to 
soothe that anxiety and fix the problems than it would be to say, yeah, you're right, you should be mad and, you know, you know let's, let's go get them or, or whatever. But I think dealing with citizens as informed, intelligent, rational actors who do understand the need for figuring out a tough path forward, do understand the hard work that goes into building a better future, is what liberal democracies must cling to, to trust their citizens a little more, to treat them like uh, intelligent actors and not just people who respond to, you know, knee-jerk populism, uh, and have that faith to to carry it through and genuinely listen to their fears and carry them with you in a way that isn't, oh, well, you know, I went to a good school, so I can tell you what the solution is. No, let me hear from you what you think the solution is. One of the challenges is that social media is such that it is a tool for the arousal of these passions and manipulated. We've seen the Russians very active. Um, how big a concern is that of yours, just the manipulation of, of, of these tools that now exist to exacerbate divisions, exacerbate resentments? I think tools uh, can be used for, for bad or for good. I mean, certainly, uh, whether it was uh, Barack Obama's election or our election, we used social media effectively as a way of bringing people together. Uh, one, of, one of my MPs, who's actually my special advisor on LGBT issues, uh, just actually said, you know, I was looking at it. Any time someone posts something about LGBT or something, there are uh, bots that ons- insulate little troll bots that come out and make negative comments. He says, well, why aren't there any positive troll bots? Uh, and he talked to some of the, the social media companies. He said, well, nobody wants to pay for that positive reinforcement. Lots of people are paying for those negative uh, reinforcement. He says, well, well, let's we need a pay better for class some. of bots. Well, let's we let's pay. And they've actually gone out and, and created a, a positive reinforcing mechanism whenever there's an LGBT re- remark. We covered uh, in a discussion we had in front of the audience a number of issues, and so I don't want to talk about those here. But I just, in closing, want to ask you about your mom. Hmm. Uh, People who listen to this podcast know I lost a dad to suicide. Mental illness is a real concern of mine. And um, her decision to go public – and write about it and speak about it was not just a courageous thing, but it also gives courage to other people mm. uh, to come forward. Are we turning a corner uh, on this? Because it feels like we have a long way to go yet. Yeah, we still have a long way to go. But And, and, it, and it happens when you know, one of the criticisms tossed at me when I was starting in politics was, well, you know, he's not much of his father's son. He's much more like his mother. And that was the attack. And my mom uh, struggled with mental illness all her life. She suffers from bipolarity. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s when I was looking at an old picture of her with short hair when she was really skinny. She says, oh, yeah, I was really fighting depression at that moment. And that was the first time I'd ever heard her Mm. refer to some of the real challenges she'd had through my childhood as being mental illness. And it was sort of like a light bulb went off for me. And dealing with my mom and supporting her through some very difficult times in her life, whether it was the death of my little brother or others, um, taught me a lot about uh, the strength required in families and in society to support people struggling with mental illness. And now uh, when someone says, oh, you're, you're your mother's son, I say, thank you. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing you could ever say. And the courage that she has in 
pushing forward the tough conversations around destigmatizing, about looking for better structural help for people who are vulnerable has deeply informed my own approach in government and we're investing massively in mental health support. And I think we are making a change, but yes, there's a long way to go. As you speak about that, I think about how hard it must have been for her. We talked about how hard it was for you as a kid. But I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be a young woman in her 20s with the entire, not just the country, but the whole world was fascinated by her and the Trudeaus. Uh, To have that kind of attention and have to deal uh, with this must have been extraordinarily tough. Yeah, no, she she had a a tough, uh, tough run of it dealing with things that uh, I can't even imagine. And, you know, regularly when I when I was talking about politics with with Sophie, who's very much a partner to me in this, you know, and and my mom sort of said, oh, you guys need to watch out. I'm like, mom, we're in our 30s. You were in your early 20s and all this. I mean, we're we're a little further along in being able to deal with it. But that the strength that my mom has and the, her capacity to, to make it through something and come out as an amazing, wonderful grandmother of, of eight kids now uh, and uh, speaking out and, and being in an activism on mental health issues and on aging and, and all these wonderful things. I'm, I, just, I just can't stop saying how proud I am to be my mother's son. I'm sure she would say the same of you. Mm. Thank you so much. We will move now to the... Uh, public portion uh, of our discussion, but I will say now what I said at the end of that, which is it's been extraordinary to have you here, and you really represent uh, the spirit uh, of the Institute of Politics in that you have so encouraged young people to get involved in uh, the process of, uh, of politics and public service. So thank you so much. Thank you, David, for including me in this. Minister, thank you so much. Uh, I can't think of a better message for this occasion and this group. Part of the tradition of the Institute of Politics, however, is that you get scrutinized by these young people as well. And uh, they have sent uh, dozens of questions, and I've filtered a few here. And not surprisingly, because you said that you've been following American politics. Uh, Let me get to the elephant in the room right away. Uh, Graham Sotir, uh, a a fourth-year student, writes, how has Donald Trump challenged your agreeable diplomatic demeanor? (laughs) How have you learned to speak with and deal with him, and has this been different from your approach to other world leaders? And Emily Waters, the the, uh, first year, said... Would you categorize the Canadian-American relationship differently now under the Trump administration than you would when Barack Obama was president? Um, First of all, international relations, and I learned this from my dad, was one of the tangible things I learned about politics, is often about interpersonal relations and how I uh, engage with uh, the different leaders really very much depends on how how best to engage with them and what what the particular situation is. So, yes, I deal differently with uh, Donald Trump than I would with uh, Emmanuel Macron or Theresa May or with Barack Obama because... So what's the secret sauce? Um, the, the secret to getting along is always to find common ground. And at the center of of the relationship between the Canadian Prime Minister and the American President uh, is the fact that our countries and our peoples 
get along so well and are so closely intertwined that the relationship is much bigger and much deeper than uh, the ideologies or perspectives of whoever happens to uh, be Prime Minister of Canada and whoever is, is occupying the White House. So starting with that as a, a beginning point, that the relationship is bigger than uh, either of the two of us, uh, is grounding and useful. And the second piece of it for me is that Canadians elected me uh, to do a job to make sure that they have a better future, a brighter future, that, uh, that their kids have opportunities, uh, and that their country reflects their values and their priorities in the way we go. Because that is my job, um, that dictates everything I do. So Canadians expect me to have a constructive relationship with the United States, a constructive relationship with the president, whoever that president is, and that's exactly what I do. Me, At the same time, yes. Canadians also expect me to stand up uh, for Canadian values, to stand up for Canadian interests, and that's exactly what I, I intend to do. And standing up for Canadian values and having a constructive relationship with the president doesn't have to be uh, a direct contradiction, uh, because there are lots of things on which we can find common ground. He got elected on a promise to make America work for uh, people who had been left out, which is not entirely dissimilar from the commitment that I made uh, to try and help the middle class in Canada. Broadly constructed, yes. We have let me, differences, uh, let me, uh, differences in let how me, to do it, for uh, sure. Uh, let, uh, let me ask you a political question, though, because you, you, you pointed out the two kind of imperatives, uh, getting along with America and representing Canadian interests. There was a poll last week that uh, showed uh, the approval rating for American leadership at 20 percent in Canada now. That's down from 60 a year ago. I think it was the steepest drop of any country. What political problems does that cause for you uh, in trying to strike deals with uh, the President of the United States? Uh, I think... And why do you think that is, by the way, that 40% drop? I'm I'm not going to wonder about things, but Canadians know... (laughs) Well, no, Canadians know how important uh, a good relationship with the United States is. We know how much NAFTA has benefited Canada, but we also are very knowledgeable about how NAFTA has benefited the United States. We're talking about 9 million jobs directly linked to trade with Canada across the United States. It's good for Canada. Uh, it's good for the United States. And we are uh, you know, legitimately um, concerned about the future of NAFTA uh, because the president has said that he, he's not sure that it's a good thing. So when Canadians see me uh, engaging constructively, collaboratively, but firmly uh, at the negotiating table on NAFTA, saying, look, we, we know there are ways to modernize and improve NAFTA in a way that will create a win-win-win uh, when we include Mexico. There is a path absolutely for that. But we are not going to take a win-loss just for the sake of getting a deal. And I've been very, very clear. We're going to expect a good deal, uh, a fair deal, because quite frankly, there is no country in the world that has a greater vested interest in the United States being successful than Canada. 
Because no matter how good we're doing in Canada, if your economy faces troubles, uh, we get, uh, you, know, you know, when you sneeze, we catch a cold. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, we're so interlinked that absolutely we want to make sure that it's a good deal for the United States because that's part of making a good deal for Canada, and that's what we're focused on. So on this point, uh, Andrea Ochoa, who is a first-year, writes uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, you stated several days ago that Canada is willing to walk away from NAFTA if the United States proposes a bad deal. Uh, Under what terms would you expect all three countries to be able to successfully renegotiate the trade deal? And let me repurpose this and ask you, what are the red lines that you simply can't cross? Well, I think we've we've been clear that there's a number of things that we we have deep concerns about. One of the benefits of NAFTA is the stability that it provides in terms of of investments uh, and building supply chains that crisscross the border. I mean, there there are situations in which. Uh, Auto part, an auto part might crisscross the border six times before making it into a completed vehicle. And that's good for our economy. It's good for your economy. It just makes a lot of sense. Uh, anything uh, that provides a level of uncertainty, like a sunset clause, for example, uh, to businesses, is uh, something that we have grave reservations about. But what I've, I've said is, and I think the language of walking away is, has been taken as mirroring uh, some of the things that the president has said, we have a, a different approach on that. It is, it is that we will continue to engage thoughtfully, constructively at the negotiating table because we know there is a good deal to be had. Uh, and I'm not going to negotiate it in public here, but we know we can work towards a good time, deal. Uh, but we also know that we will not be pushed into accepting any old deal, and no deal uh, might very well be better for Canada than a bad deal. Let, and being firm on that is, I think, what Canadians expect of us. Let me, let me ask you, uh, because you, you are a close observer, then you, you know that the president's campaign was very much propelled by his anti-trade rhetoric, anti-NAFTA Rhetoric. He, we sit in the industrial Midwest where many people feel like they were disadvantaged by trade deals in the way that you described in your, in your talk. Uh, are, the poli- are the political incentives aligned properly for him? Or, or isn't there something, as you're a practicing politician, the, the, isn't there something in it for him to walk away and say, I kept my promise, I walked away from NAFTA? The problem is the disruption on millions of American jobs, of American families, when suddenly the supply chains that they're part of uh, that exist between Canada and the U.S., and in some cases Mexico, uh, get more difficult, get more uncertain, thickening at the border, means in the short term, even if theoretically there is a better opportunity for a long-term deal, in the short term, that's a lot of families out of work, suffering uh, in a way that I think would be uh, far worse Politically, And the challenge we have is not uh, trade deal versus no trade deal. It's how do we make sure that we're benefiting citizens and workers who don't feel like they've been properly supported or cared for over the past years. And the right trade deal and proper updating and modernization and improvement, to take a concrete example, the way we're pushing for improved labor standards around NAFTA is not something that will massively impact the Canada-U.S. dynamic because we have very similar uh, labor standards and very similar approaches and very similar economies. But if we can raise labor standards in, the, in Mexico, 
then there is less of an incentive to move companies there for the extreme low wages, and at the same time, the companies that are there uh, with higher wages will create a consumer base that will do a better job of actually buying products from Canada and the United States and will create more economic growth there. So these are all problems that are not intractable. They are problems that require us to sit down and figure out the best way forward for our citizens. And that's very much what we're engaged in. Did the the U.S. uh, make a mistake walking away from the TPP? You just joined the successor... Uh, agreement uh, to the TPP, but that represents 15% of the world market as opposed to 40% if the U.S. had stayed in. So less market power there. Did uh, did the U.S., uh, it certainly disadvantages the group. Did it disadvantage itself? You know, I, I'm not going to uh, opine uh, on uh, on the U.S. decisions on it, but I, I've made no bones about the fact that I think trade uh, is and will remain a motor for growth. The issue is not trade, no trade. The issue is what kind of trade and how do we make sure people are benefiting from trades. And what we did in changes to the the, the now comprehensive and progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership involved things like protection on uh, intellectual property rights, uh, protection around uh, some of our cultural industries because our cultural industries, particularly in Quebec, uh, where language is a really important identifier and driver of identity, uh, you know, we're worried about the impact that it could have on those sorts of things. Uh, we've uh, gotten certain imp- improvements to uh, the approach on autos to make sure that, that our auto workers are going to do, do better in the long term under the CPTPP. So we've, we've looked at ways of improving the outcomes in a way that, yes, there are people in Canada who have concerns about a trade deal with Asia and what that's going to have as an impact on their industries, on their jobs. But we also know that the growing economies of Asia are a pivot we have to make as a world to engage with. And I think a trade deal that includes countries like Japan, Australia, uh, New Zealand, and others uh, is a good thing uh, for Canada. And that's why we moved forward and why we're still hopeful that uh, in the coming years, uh, the U.S. will choose to join. Uh, Yang Xiang, uh, a, a f- first year, asked this. Many people compared your official visit to China last December to Trump's visit last November, saying that your commitment to progressive ideas such as human rights, the rule of law, and gender equality was considered sensitive, therefore not received well by, Ch- by the Chinese government. In contrast, President Trump did sign multi-billion dollar deals with Beijing while ignoring U.S. traditional values which his predecessors had upheld. The question is how to engage with authoritarian leaders in this increasingly multipolar world without falling into credibility, a credibility trap in exercising moral leadership. Um, it's always a balance. Uh, we know that uh, it's easy to, you know, one path is to sort of sit back mm-hmm. and say, I'm not going to engage with anyone who doesn't share our values and our progressive ideals. Uh, and maybe larger economies can get away with that, but Canada as a country doesn't really get a lot of leverage if we say, well, we're not going to talk to you until you uh, change your your system, um, is not 
our path for actually bringing about improvements and changes that will meaningful improve, meaningfully improve outcomes for people. So we feel that thinking about how we engage in a responsible way uh, that, yes, looks for economic opportunities for our citizens. I mean, we're very interested in some of the opportunities for our small businesses, for agricultural producers to sell into the growing Chinese middle-class market. But we're not going to back off on saying, look, we believe that a, a free, informed populace is essential uh, through a free, a free, independent media. Uh, these are essential pillars of success and freedom in society, and we're not going to flinch too much on that. We're going to respect that you have a different view on it, but we're going to find ways where we can stand true to our values and create benefits for our country and perhaps some benefits for your citizens that will you know, see that there are other ways of doing things that might be better down the road. It came up uh, again this week in the story that surfaced that Canada's selling 16 combat helicopters to the Philippines. You were very critical of the Duterte regime. They didn't much appreciate it when you were there on that same trip uh, to Asia. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's been criticized by some human rights advocates and some of your political opponents. Uh, do you have any concerns about giving him weaponry that could be used against his own citizens? Absolutely. We have very uh, clear rules around uh, who and what we can sell uh, either arms or potential military uh, vehicles like helicopters uh, and you know, controls on what uh, what they intend to be used for and checks on how they are used. And we're going to make sure before this deal or any other deal goes through uh, that we are abiding by the rules and the expectations that, that aren't just sort of values but that are actual rules that Canadian governments have to follow when we're looking at uh, deals like this, whether it's uh, selling equipment to uh, foreign countries, uh, from arms to, to whatever, or uh, on investments by different countries in Canada to make sure that they fit within the security framework that we want, that there's not national security interests, and that they're in a net benefit position for Canadian citizens, for workers. Uh, so you're satisfied in this case that these, these, this We're still in the process of looking at it. I see. Um, this issue of balance, it, it's, it, you know, you, you ran a campaign that was familiar to me. It was more of a movement than a campaign, and it inspired a great deal of idealism. And governing is tougher. Uh, so on an issue like the environment, I mean, you have a very strong issue on the environment. You also have a country that extracts uh, energy, and uh, you're, you're dealing with issues of pipelines uh, in your country. How do you make those decisions? Where do you draw the line? You know, we had a big controversy in this country about the Keystone Pipeline to bring oil from the oil sands uh, of Alberta down uh, to, uh, to the port of, of uh, Louisiana and so on. What, uh, what is the standard you use? How do you make that calculus? And how do you keep from disappointing people who say... Gee, I thought he'd be stronger than that. Mm. Uh, well, first of all, in government, you're going to have to make choices that uh, some people are going to disagree with. And what people look at you know, is, well, what choices have you made? And also, what is the underlying thinking? What are the values that drove those decisions? Uh, we ran on a platform uh, that said, you know what, those to our left 
uh, and to our right both say that you have to choose. It's either the environment or the economy. You can't do them both together. But I know, and most people know, that the only way to build the strong economy of the future is to make sure we're protecting the environment at the same time. So that's a nice thing to say, and it's a fundamental principle we live by. But when you actually get around to making those decisions, there were a number of pipelines, pipeline proposals we looked at. Um, uh, a couple of them we turned down, or one of them we turned down, the Northern Gateway. Uh, one of them we approved, the, Keist- the, uh, the Kinder Morgan TMX pipeline. Uh, the people who wanted all pipelines were furious at us for refusing uh, the Northern Gateway. And the people who wanted no pipelines uh, were furious at us, not for turning down the Northern Gateway, but for approving the TMX pipeline. Uh, so we made a decision not not just looking for a Goldilocks solution, but we actually know that for the first time in Canada's history, we were able to put together a concrete plan, not just targets, not just targets to reach our climate emission reductions, but a plan to reach those. And that plan involved different things. It involved a national price on carbon pollution, national standards in every region of the country that will actually be met and reduce our carbon emissions. But the flip side of that is we're actually going to get our uh, oil resources to new markets across the Pacific. We'll do it safely and securely through a pipeline, uh, which is better than doing it by rail or by trucks. Uh, And the folks on the right are upset there's a national price on carbon. The folks on the left are upset we approved a single pipeline. Uh, We actually approved more than one pipeline. But we're doing that because there's a balance. And on top of that, we're putting in world-class oceans protection uh, to make sure that the BC coast is safe. So these things all fit together, and anyone can find issue with one of those decisions. And what I am counting on and hoping on, and I think reasonably confident about, because I know Canadians and I know we're reasonable people, people will get the big picture we're going at. And that, that faith in Canadians is uh, one, that, uh, one that I am uh, confident in. I can't let you go without asking you this. Uh, We hear a lot in this debate about immigration in our country now from conservatives saying we need a system like Canada. We need a merit-based system. And I uh, I read your your very uh, fine autobiography, and you were critical of uh, of the policies of the of the conservatives on this, as you said, from the short-sighted restriction of the family unification policy to the mismanagement of the temporary foreign worker program, we are eroding the unique Canadian insight that people come from abroad to find a new life, not just a better job. We should see the newly arrived as community builders and potential citizens, not just as employees. Uh, are you shocked or surprised to see your, your country held up as an example for why America should cut its own legal immigration? Oh, I think, I think what we've done as a country, but quite frankly, the, the story of North America's success is the story of people coming here from all around the world and building better lives for themselves. Uh, a number of decades ago, we shifted away from judging immigrants uh, on country of origin, instead looked at uh, the skills they brought, looked at their level of education, looked at a points-based system where if you could speak English or French, you'd, you'd have more advantages. And that allowed us to get away from a ethnic or geographically-based 
process. Well, that's process. what's being proposed is a, a shift to that kind of system. Well, for us, that system is part of what has ensured that while part of the world or much of the world is turning away from immigration, Canadians, whether you're you know anywhere on the political spectrum, mainstream political spectrum in Canada, there, there is no anti-immigration party uh, that has a single seat in our parliament, for example. We have a broad consensus that immigration has been good for us. And the, the most important responsibility I have as prime minister uh, towards Canadians and immigration is to protect that positive view of immigration. And that means continuing to bring over uh, good people. We Yes, we have a merit-based system, but we also have... Uh, a refugee system that is not merit-based, that uh, that brings in people who are among the most vulnerable because, uh, yes, they come with uh, a dearth of language skills or education. They come from war-torn places where their kids are you know, 12 years old and have never seen the inside of a classroom uh, once, and their path to integration is longer. But you know, we've seen it. We've, we have studies on it, but you also have that sense of the stories we hear in our communities, people who come to our countries with nothing from devastation are the ones who are most passionate about working incredibly hard, not just for themselves and their families, but to build strong communities and to give back to this country that gave their kids an opportunity for the future. And that has been an incredible lever of success in Canada. Canadians get that, and America, lots of Americans get that. So protecting that and demonstrating that we can continue to make that work without compromising on security, on making sure that we're investing in the kind of training and language acquisition that is going to give them the tools to succeed uh, remains an incredibly important element of, of, uh, of, of what what Canada's doing you, well. You right accepted 35,000, is that right? Sir? A little over 40, a little over 40. And how is that, how are they being assimilated? Some of them are doing great. Some of them are finding it really tough. Uh, one of the things we have that's great around refugees is, is a private sponsorship system where church groups, uh, community groups, individual families can sponsor a family, uh, help pay for the services they're going to need in that first year, and mostly provide them support and uh, a network that is going to help them with their integration. And that connection means the privately sponsored refugees uh, tend to do better quicker uh, than uh, the government-sponsored ones who are usually the most vulnerable of the vulnerable who we bring over. So there's a mix of success paths, but Canadians are rightly very proud of it and it's not something no this government. No political backlash. Did. It seemed like you've had to deal with some of that. Oh, of course, there's always a little bit. I mean, you get stories of of backlashes and and you know individual problems. But by and large, Canadians are very cognizant of the potential and the contribution and the rightness of welcoming people who are fleeing the most difficult things imaginable and try to help out. And you know, there, are, there are going to be 60 million displaced persons around the world in the coming, coming years, so no country can accept them all. But if everyone does a little bit more, uh, you make a significant dent uh, in the problem. And you also look at ways of uh, solving uh, the challenges that led to those migrations. That, that hasn't been the tenor of the policy here for the last year or so. 
Um, continues to be our approach. Yes, you, you sent out apologetically. You, you sent out a tweet. In fact, uh, at the time that the president did his travel ban, saying to those fleeing persecution, terror, and war, Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Hashtag welcome to Canada. <laughs> that seemed to have a message associated with it. It's 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 a it's an emphasis of Canadian values, the way Canadians expect it, but it's also a recognition. And people have interpreted it in a number of different ways. But it's about refugees. If you're fleeing terror, persecution, war, that makes you a refugee. It's not just an economic migrant looking for uh, better opportunities from uh, a poor country, for example. Uh, it's uh, someone who literally has no country or no uh, protections or no state uh, to protect them. They're not a citizen of anywhere anymore. That's what refugees are, and that's where, uh, as... Canada is a signatory to the UN Convention on Refugees, we have an obligation and we have a, 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 an understanding that welcoming in people who are uh, refugees who have absolutely nothing to fall back on is uh, an important part of our, uh, our strength. Finally, uh, in keeping with your uh, remarks about the, di- the taking on public service, running for office, doing those things for a purpose... Uh, beyond simply holding that office. Uh, Ronan Shasky, uh, uh, a second-year student here, asks, is there a cause for which you would sacrifice your political career, and what is it? Um, My kids. Um, I'm in politics not in spite of the fact that I have kids. I'm in politics because... I have kids, and yes, I'm here tonight, so I'm not at home with them uh, back in Ottawa, and that cost on me and on them for not having their dad as home as often as they'd like and having to share him with the country in in, in many ways has to come with an understanding for me that what I am doing is going to lead to them and their generation having a better life and a better future. And if ever the time came where I didn't think the cost was worth it, that I wasn't creating enough of a better world to justify all the time I don't get to spend with them at recitals and soccer games, um, then I might re-question what I'm doing. It's bad enough that they have to share you with your country. Now they're sharing you with our country as well. (laughs) But we so appreciate them doing it, and we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Politics.